Good evening. The reading is taken from Exodus 4, verse 27 to 6, verse 1. That's Exodus 4, verse 27 to 6, verse 1. May I remind you that this is the word of God. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and make sacrifice to our Lord. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required for you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers that they were, had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, to, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for the, each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Thanks, Ella. Nice to have a grade 11 reading for us tonight. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us. 
Let me just see. I'm going to embarrass you now. If you're a first year, put your hand up. Okay, the letters G-O-D can really mean whatever you want it to mean. What will it take for the Lord to be known in all the earth? What needs to happen for God to be seen to be true and mighty and trustworthy? What will it take for our world to take God seriously? For Stellenbosch to take God seriously? For you to take God seriously? What will it take? What needs to happen? We live in a world that is ignorant of the true and living God. We live in a world that substitutes the God who made the heavens and the earth with many other created and lesser things. We live in a world where the name of God no longer carries any weight. It's used as punctuation. For many are ignorant of God. But ignorance is not our only problem. For never has there been a generation with as much information available on the subject as your generation. I nearly said as our generation. It's not that the knowledge of God is hidden. It's not that the knowledge of God and what he has done and what he is capable of is unavailable. With a click of a, of a button, you can find out what God has done and who he is and what he is capable of. And yet many are ignorant of the true and living God. It's not that they are ignorant as much as they are unbelieving. And it might be that there is somebody here tonight who knows God, knows about God, and about what he's done, and about what he is doing, and about what he will do, but you are unbelieving in your heart and resistant to him. You're not ignorant. You're unbelieving. There is a view in our culture, isn't there, that those who have faith, those who believe in the God of the Bible, those who trust him, those who pray are really like blindfolded people jumping off a cliff hoping for the best. That is the view that the world has of those who know God. The great life-changing truths of the Bible, the fact of heaven and hell, the fact of salvation and judgment, well, those things are mocked in our media, and people who believe those things are never taken seriously. And so we've got the problem of ignorance but it's compounded by the problem of unbelief. And when you put those two things together, what you get is you get defiance. Defiance. Defiance is when you've heard about God and what he has done in history and what he is doing and what he's going to do, and you reject him and you defy him and you go your own way, even though you know, even though you've been taught. We live in a very brave and a stupid world where defying God is a common human game that is played all the time. We are surrounded by people who are playing that game every day. They laugh at God, they treat God as a joke, and they treat those who are serious about God as people who cannot be taken seriously themselves. Why allow the power of God to concern you? You're young. There's lots of time for you to worry about God. Have fun in your youth. Do what you want to do. Mom and dad won't know. 
Think about God later when you're old and boring. Anyone that admits that they actually take God seriously in this world and in your generation stands to be rejected. But you know, I'm struck by the fact that not many people, uh, I've met a few, but not many in my life who openly defy God and mock Him. There are some who do that. But most people are polite about God and they, they express their defiance of God just by simply passively ignoring Him. My guess is that that's true for most people who are not Christians and are not believers. Maybe some here tonight, they ignore God. Functionally, actually, you're an atheist. You don't live as though there is a God. Maybe you think there is a God. If somebody asked you, if you were pressed, you would say, yeah, I believe that there is a God. But he has absolutely no bearing on your life. The fact that you think that there is a God is totally invisible in the way that you live your life. And do you know that those who, those of us who know God and who watch this game being played by people either openly defying or passively ignoring God, that sometimes it looks to us as though they'll get away with it. As though nothing will happen to them. Defying God is not something that looks all that stupid these days. Now in chapter 3, if you were here last week, if you weren't, you can pick up the sermon on the website. In chapter 3, we saw that God revealed himself. Never again is anybody allowed to say, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. You can't invent a God in your own image. For God has revealed himself, and therefore we take him on his terms. In chapter 4, what we come to today, in chapter 4 and 5, as we build up to the plagues in Egypt that come in chapter 7, God begins to unpack this self-revelation of himself. He told us that he is I am who I am last week. What does that mean when he starts to reveal himself to us? And one of the things that he does in order to reveal himself to us is he enables Moses to do supernatural signs and he expects those supernatural signs to lead you to believe in him. And so do you remember last time, if you were here, uh, Moses is given a sign where he can take his staff, his, his walking stick, and throw it on the ground and it turns into a snake. Pick it up by the tail, turns back into a walking stick. And then God allowed him to put his hand into his cloak and bring it out, and it was full of leprosy. Put it back in again, bring it out, and it was clean. And if they still won't believe you, says God, then take a cup of water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and it'll become blood. And then surely you would think that people would believe and not remain in defiance against God. And yet that is what we encounter. And so the first heading tonight, that was just my introduction. So get comfortable. The first heading tonight is ignorant unbelief. In, verse, in chapter 4 and verse 27, we pick up the story where we left it last time. Do you remember, if you were here last week, Moses gives God a whole string of reasons why he shouldn't go and do the ministry that God is giving him to do. Five times Moses thinks of excuses to not do what God is telling him to do. But he can't, you don't say no to Yahweh. He will get his way. And so he calls Moses bluff. Okay, you tell me that you can't speak very well. 
but your brother speaks very well, and by the way, he's on the way already, so you can go with him to speak to Pharaoh. And so they meet and they kiss, did you notice, in verse 27 and 8, and then they go together to the leaders, the elders of the Israelites, and they tell the elders everything that God had told them at the not-burning bush. And they show them the signs and the wonders. And look at the wonderful response from the elders, the last verse of chapter 4. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and that he had seen their misery, they respond in the only appropriate way. They bowed down and they worshipped. It's the only appropriate response when you meet the living God is really to fall flat on your face and to worship him. But that's not how everybody responds. For look at how Pharaoh responds in chapter 5 and verse 1. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. They said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And that's the title of my talk tonight. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And I won't let Israel go. And so Pharaoh gives Moses and Aaron a chilly reception, but he asks a crucial question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I reckon that's the most important question in all of life. It's a question you need to ask. Who is the Lord that I should give him my life? Who is the Lord that I should deny myself? Who is the Lord that I should follow him and take up my cross? Here is a man for whom the name of the Lord means nothing. He doesn't know what Moses knows. He doesn't know what the Israelites know. And he doesn't know what you know. He doesn't know that God is the great promise-keeping, enemy-smashing God who made the heavens and the earth. And so he defies God in his words. It's very interesting to see how it's written. In chapter 1, notice the words, um, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, sorry, chapter 5, verse 1, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, thus says the Lord. That's a very, very significant combination of words in the Bible. It's what the prophets always say whenever they are speaking from God, whenever they're speaking God's words, they precede themselves by saying, thus says the Lord. But look at verse 10 of chapter 5. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, go back to work. Can you see that what, what the writer of this chapter is doing is he's drawing a contrast, isn't he? A juxtaposition between uh, the God of Moses and the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, and Pharaoh. This is not a contrast between Moses and Pharaoh. It's a contrast between God and a man who thought that he was God, who was worshipped as though he was a God, an emperor who received worship from his subjects and who couldn't work out why anybody else needed to be worshipped. Can you see his defiance? Thus says the Lord. Well, who's the Lord? I don't care. Why do I need to obey him? This is what I say instead. And you know, many people today treat God like that. Maybe not as openly as that. 
maybe not as loudly or as defiantly or as publicly as that, but in our hearts, who's the Lord telling me what I can do with my body? I'll do what I want to with my body. Thus saith me. That's how God is treated by many people, most people in the world today. And so Pharaoh responds in defiance. And so in verses 4 to 14, he makes a bad situation worse for Israel in the days before organized labor and unions and kasatu. And from the perspective of Moses and the Israelites, the tension rises and the question in the air is, who will win? Will it be Yahweh, who, does, who seems again to be sitting on his hands, or will it be Pharaoh who seems to be making their lives hell? But do you know, actually everything is going according to plan. This is what God said would happen. God's not surprised. Look at this verse, chapter 4 and verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I've given you to do, the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Do you notice that, those, that last um, chilling phrase? I will harden his heart. How can Pharaoh be held accountable for his defiance against God if God who he is defying has hardened his heart? Do you know, eight times in the book of Exodus we are told about Pharaoh's hard heart. Four of those times we are told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Look at this example, chapter 8, verse 32. But this time, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. The other four times, God hardens his heart. For example, chapter 10 and verse 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that you may perform these signs of mine among them, so that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I perform my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. See, God has got one great concern that we need to come to terms with, and it's not you. It's not me. It is his own name. And he will do whatever it takes and whatever is necessary for his own name to be made famous as it should be in all the world. And so the shocking truth is that even unbelief like Pharaoh's and defiance like Pharaoh and his officials, even that is within God's control and is part of his plan and is wielded by God to bring glory to himself. God's plans will never fail. They might not unfold at the speed that we would like them to unfold at, but they will never fail, and he will always be glorified. Now, friends, it's time for us to, get, to come to terms with the fact that God, what these verses show us, is that God himself lies behind unbelief. God is not surprised when people defy him. It's not like God is in control of everything in the world except the human will. 
And every time somebody decides to rebel against God or to ignore God or to disbelieve God or to defy God, God goes, oh, I didn't see that coming. How disappointing. God knows everything. God controls everything. Every single heart is in the hand of God. And do you know the purpose? There is a great purpose behind Pharaoh's unbelief. It is so that the Lord can show the world who it is that they are dealing with. So that his name will be made famous. That he will become renowned across all generations. And that's precisely what happened. Look at this verse from the next generation after Moses. Do you remember the story of Joshua leading the Israelites into the nation of, into Canaan, into the land of Canaan? And do you remember that they march around a city called Jericho seven times and the walls fall down? And there's one person who's rescued, a prostitute by the name of Rahab, who comes to believe in God and who gets saved and included in God's people. But look at this quote. Here is Rahab speaking to the Israelites. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. We have heard what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. See, there is an example of somebody, a prostitute, who didn't see for herself, she just heard about the wonders of God in Egypt. And that was enough for her to believe in God and to stop defying Him and to turn towards Him in faith. What a story it was in the ancient Near East. Imagine the downfall of a great superpower by a group of poor, downtrodden peasants wielding pitchforks against the great Egyptian army. It's a bit like the South African Navy competing with the Russians and the Chinese navies. Oh, mind you, that happened last week. Absurd and embarrassing. Unbelief and defiance. These things are not outside of God's control. He uses it to further his plans, and his great plan is to make himself famous. You know, we hate it when we see people like that, don't we? People who always want to be in the center of everything. People who can't function unless there's a crisis spinning around them that they are the center of. People who always talk about themselves. People who always want you to hear their stories and talk over you when you're trying to tell your story. Do you know somebody like that? Do you know why it's so ugly? Because they are behaving in the way that only God is allowed to behave. He is central to everything. Move him out from the center, and life falls apart. And that's what we are seeing all around us. And so God will be famous. On Judgment Day, can Pharaoh say to God, Well, listen, you harden my heart, so I'm not culpable. I'm not to blame. No, four times we're told. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He is to blame. Don't harden your heart tonight against God. Some of you might have come in here tonight skeptical about Christian things. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome. We welcome skeptics. We welcome your questions. We welcome your objections. We think that the Christian Bible 
and the Christian message of the gospel ought to be scrutinized and examined and questioned. We're not offended by that. It's lovely that you're here if you're a skeptic. But I want to warn you tonight that in your skepticism, your questions are welcome, but don't harden your heart against God. Look at Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. I have raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What right has God got? Well, he's God. He's the one who made you and who owns you and who has the right to do with you as he pleases. Is that your view of God? Or is your God a domesticated God, a small God, a God who only ever affirms you and encourages you and thinks that you're wonderful? Well, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not a true God. That's a God of your, the figment of our imaginations. Here is the true God. I will be made known in all the world. I will keep my promises to my people. I will do whatever it takes for my word to win. It's a warning to us, dear friends. There are many who harden their hearts against the Lord. Perhaps some here tonight, maybe it doesn't look like it, maybe nobody knows that you've hardened your heart, but you know it secretly in your heart. You have turned cold towards the Lord. And the warning is that a day may come when you won't be able to go back. You've crossed a line. Look at this from Romans chapter 9 and verse 18. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Is that the God you believe in? That's the true God. The God of the Bible. And so do not please presume on the grace of God. Do not presume on the fact that you grew up in a Christian family and that you've been a churchgoer your whole life and you've been confirmed and baptized in a church and you're a member of a church and you were in the music group and teaching son. Don't rest on any of those things. In your heart, are you warm towards God tonight? Are you living his way? Have you done what the Israelites did? fell on your face before him and worshipped him and centralized him in your life? Or is it just a little bit of God at the end of the weekend if it isn't too inconvenient? The rest of the time I don't give him a thought. God has made himself known. Take note and tremble. Here's the second thing I want you to see tonight, much shorter. That was ignorant unbelief from Pharaoh, but here is informed unbelief from Moses and the Israelites. It's worth noting that the Israelites had really listened selectively when Aaron and Moses told them that God was about to rescue them. We are told in chapter 4 and verse 30 uh, that Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses, which must have included Chapter 3 and verse 19, chapter 3 and verse 19 says, um, 
I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. The Israelites got ahead of themselves. God is going to rescue you. Yay, they didn't hear anything else. But it's going to happen in my time and only after I've had opportunity to show my mighty hand. And so they were selectively listening. And so by the time they get, we get to the end of chapter 5, in verse 21, they're so discouraged, they say to Moses and Aaron, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious. Literally, you have made us a stench in the nostrils of Pharaoh. And then, astoundingly, Moses himself also loses his grip while he waits for God to keep his promise. For in verse 22 of chapter 5, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Now, I want you to listen carefully to me about this. In the Hebrew language, it literally says, Why, Lord, have you done evil? That's what it says. You've called the Israelites to serve you, and all they're doing is still serving Pharaoh. Why have you done evil? against your people. And a, and a very important question is raised. Does the suffering of God's people show that God is evil? Do you know, it's a question that's been asked for thousands of years. You can go on Wikipedia this. It's called theodicy, if you want to read up on it. Theodicy is the great problem of how can a loving God allow suffering? And what it says is that God, if God is, is all-powerful, if, as you Christians say, God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then how do you explain evil and suffering in the world today? It's a huge question. And some people have answered it like this. They've said, well, if God is God, then he's not good. And if God is good, then he's not God. And what they mean is, is if God is all-powerful, he can't possibly also be all good because surely he would do something about the suffering of his people in the world. So maybe he is all-powerful. He can do something about it if he wants to, but he doesn't want to, and therefore you can't say that he's good. Or, alternatively, God is good, and he desperately wants to do something about the suffering of his people, but he's not all-powerful, and so he can't. And which God are you going to take? The Bible says... He is all-powerful, and he is all-good, simultaneously. Look at Isaiah 45 and verse 7. I don't know if this is the God you believe in. I'm sure this is the least believed verse in the whole Bible. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. Is that the God you believe in? The Bible's view, it's very important for us to understand this, is that God stands behind good and also behind evil in different ways, asymmetrically. He stands behind good in such a way that he gets the glory for the good. He is seen as the originator of the good. All good things are a gift from God and are because of God. God be praised. He stands behind evil in such a way not that he gets blamed for it. He can never be blamed for it. What has light got to do with darkness? 
but in the sense that he uses evil for good in the world. That's what the Bible teaches us. Consider the alternative, friends. The alternative is, is that God is surprised by evil and by sin. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. Is that a God you can fall down and worship? And so God, do you remember in uh, the previous book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, do you remember that Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, which is what many older siblings have wished they could do to their younger siblings over the years? And he's sold into slavery, and, he, and after a long period of time, 20 years or something, he becomes a very powerful man, Joseph. He goes from the slave pit to prison, to the palace. And he becomes really the prime minister, the, the, the deputy president of Egypt, which was the great superpower of the day. And one day his brothers, the very same ones who sold him into slavery, appear in front of him. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. You know the story. And one day he can't contain himself any longer, and he reveals his identity to them. Now, if you were one of the older siblings, what would you be thinking? Here he's like the second most powerful guy in the world. He can have my head if he asks for it. And he'd probably be right, actually, to ask for it. And so Joseph realizes that they are frightened. And so he says these amazing words to them. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You see it there in one act. They sold him into slavery. They were doing evil. But God used the evil to bring about great good and raised up Joseph to become the savior of the world in that time. And so God is the God who stands behind everything. There's nothing that's outside of his control. I don't know what evil you've experienced, and I don't know what evil you have done. But do you know that that is, not, that is not beyond God? You can come back from that. And God will use it to glorify his great name. And it's so interesting to me to see God's response to Moses. You have done evil to these people. And what does the Lord say in chapter 6 and verse 1? Now you will see what I'll do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. He doesn't defend himself. God doesn't owe you a defense or an explanation for why what has happened to you has happened. Who do you think you are? God is God. And he is sovereignly in control of every detail of everybody's life. He owes us no explanation for his actions. And so he doesn't do that with Moses. He simply restates the plan. Moses, you are not in possession of all the facts. I might not be working according to your timetable, but I am working, and I will win. Watch the space, and trust me. See, God's plans are not stopped by ignorant, unbelieving defiance. God does not work according to our timetable, but God does work. And he has worked, and he is working, and he will work in the future. 
there is a significant difference between the unbelief of Pharaoh and the unbelief of Moses. The unbelief of Moses unfolds with Moses still talking to God. You notice that? Why have you done evil to God? He's still reasoning with God, wrestling with God. He hasn't let go of God. That's a good sign. And we know with hindsight that Moses comes to a faith in God that is unwavering later on in the story. Friends, what will it take for the Lord to be known in all the earth? What will it take for the name of the Lord to be honored as it ought to be and for God to be centralized as he ought to be? Well, you know, what it will take has already happened. The story of the Exodus is enough data for God to be taken seriously, but he's given us more and he's given us something better. He's given us the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said to you last week, if you were here, that the Old Testament is a Christian book that is about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Exodus is about. For on the cross, the great God who made the heavens and the earth condescended to be a man. He did not stay above the suffering and the evil of the world and not get his hands dirty. He came into the world and himself became a victim of evil and suffering and sin and defiance and unbelief and ignorance. And what he wants from us is he wants us to trust him, the suffering God. Do you think we can trust him? He knows about evil firsthand. He knows about sin. He knows about defiance. And so I want to say to you tonight, friends, come with your questions and your, and your objections to Christianity. That's welcomed. But don't harden yourself. Don't use your objections as smoke screens. Here's the test for your objections. If, I, if, if your objections and questions to the Christian message, if all of them can be answered in a way that satisfies you, will you become a Christian? If your answer is no, then you are in defiance against God. That is a foolishness. And be warned tonight. But for those of us who believe, can I encourage you tonight by saying that the evil and the suffering and the pain and even the sin in your own life that you so hate and loathe and wish you could stop doing, that all of that is in the hand of God, being wielded and used for your good and for his greatness. Will you trust him and relax into his hands? Thanks, Grant. Uh, we're going to have a time of question. God is in control of your salvation, supremely and sovereignly. Got it? On the other hand, the Bible says, 